The following audio content is a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at www.upc.org. Before I begin my sermon, I want to make a personal statement. Major events of my life have happened in this church. I came here first in 1956, just out of seminary, to work with high school and college students here at UPC. Some of you here today were a part of that ministry. You encouraged me to be bold, to grow, and to preach. I met my best friend and life partner, Shirley Green, here, and I married her. She had come first to this church in 1954 as a freshman at the university. Our first child, Anne, was delivered by a doctor who was a member of UPC, Dr. Glenn Roten. She was baptized in this sanctuary. You encouraged me in my marriage and with my new family as you set us off, sent us off to the Philippines. There uh, were those of you who kept in touch with us, and, they sent, and you sent letters to us while we were there. You encouraged us to be steadfast, take risks. Dr. Robert Boyd Munger, who was pastor at UPC at that time, prayed for us and encouraged us in our move to Berkeley, where we went next. Our daughter Anne attended here during medical school. Our daughter Liz went to the inn while she was a student at the U of Dub. She married a young man, Eric Jacobson, who grew up in this church, and their wedding was in this sanctuary. Our son John and his family have attended UPC now that they live in Seattle, and I baptized two of my grandsons here. In 1991, when we returned to this church, it was like coming home. Your gracious Friendship, your sheer encouragement, and laughter and joy have surrounded us for over 50 years. And for a total of 25 plus, I've had the privilege of being one of your pastors. I've been honored to serve as preacher and teacher alongside of a superb team of colleagues on the staff here. We've been so cared for and loved by you. Thank you. And now, as we enter a new chapter in our lives, you have the opportunity to love and encourage another young man, your new senior pastor, George Hinman, and his family, as you have encouraged us. And I commend him to you and his ministry to you. Today, as we announce to you another major happening in our lives, I have to remind you that I've often said I don't believe in retirement, and I think the Lord has a sense of humor. <laughs> we started Earl Palmer Ministries, but we never dreamed it would be this extensive that uh, I would be heading off to uh, be a visiting preaching pastor at the National Presbyterian Church in Washington, D.C. as a part of this Earl Palmer Ministries extended ministry. And uh, in a few weeks, Shirley and I will leave for the nation's capital and serve seven months there in that role. I anticipate many flights across the United States to return to Seattle for my Earl Palmer ministry commitments here as well. Although my time as senior pastor of UPC is over, our time as friends in Christ will never end. The times and events that we have shared as our lives have intersected with you will not be forgotten. We will continue to pray for you and for this church, and we ask for your prayers as we move forward. We love you. I know a house that took me in to send me out. I wrote this poem in 2001 for this church. And I keep finding this house in all of the places in my life as if it were as itinerant as I. My first memory of this place I call a house is of friendly fragrances, the smell of evening suppers, coffee brewing, sometimes old wooden doors that are out of fashion, 
and sometimes the new aroma of children laughing. I came to know the people of this house who took me in and who sent me out because they taught me here about the owner of the house. And in time, I learned his name. I always loved, best of all, the main room right in the center of this house, a room that always seems vast in size to me, with its grand sounds, solemn and joyous, and the flood of colors, both sunny and on sunny and cloudy days. I learned the memory of a royal past because of this house, and like a waterfall cataract of some mysterious river that flowed around its open door, I felt the powerful surprise of hope and resolve. I know this house, and wherever I go, I find it either settled in or precariously perched, yet always the house that takes me in to send me out. And now I have a text for you, a wonderful text from the, book, from the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. If you want to open up to chapter 4, you already heard part of that read in the beginning of worship. It's an unforgettable text. And I love that text for us today. In it, John, who is written from the island of Patmos, he's a prisoner there, and he's writing to churches around Ephesus where he was bishop. And he writes, first of all, seven letters to seven churches. And those are the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. And then at the end of the third chapter, he has what amounts to a tremendous dream, I guess. Because he gets called up to go up into, just like Isaiah did in the year that King Uzziah died, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. In fact, chapter 4 sounds almost identical to Isaiah's experience when he was lifted up and saw the Lord high and lifted up. And that happens to John. And a lot of mysterious things happen to him that he cannot explain or understand. In fact, throughout the book of Revelation, there's a lot of things you'll see in, in, that, that are happening around that he doesn't understand and he can't interpret. But he hears two songs. And the two songs that he hears, one we'll see in chapter 4 and the other in chapter 5, are clear and they're understandable. As are all the great chorales throughout the book of Revelation. They're clear, they're understandable. That's why when George Frederick Handel wrote his Messiah, the great two-and-a-half-hour work, almost all of the great New Testament chorales come from the book of Revelation because they're so clear, they're so understandable. Well, the first song tells, uh, pays tribute to God himself, and we read part of it at the beginning of worship. Listen to it. Uh, I was lifted up, he said. And I saw the throne, and I saw one seated on the throne, and there's all this imagery surrounds it. And then I saw seraphs and all those that were singing, and they, day and night, without ceasing, they sing. And here's the first song. Holy, holy, holy. We sang that at the beginning of worship today. The Lord God the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And then... Following the singing of that song, the elders that were surrounding the throne threw down their crowns in front of the, of the Lord. And they continued to sing, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will, your decision, they existed and were created. And that's the first song. This amazing song. Uh, it 
it sings to God, holy, holy, holy. It honors him and says he's worthy. This word axios, worthy, means you are congruent. You are the one who has the... It's the word for integrity in the New Testament Greek. You have the integrity. You have the right, is what it says, to receive glory and honor. And because you created all things, and by your decision, your will, everything existed and was created. This song is amazing when you think of it coming out of the first century in the Greek world. Because the Greek world at that time had already decided that the world was created by an inferior deity. We call that Gnosticism, which had such an influence on uh, the first and second centuries. And that, that's how they answer the problem of evil. The problem of, of imperfections, ah, because the world has an inferior deity, and therefore the hope would be somehow to be able to escape out of the world into the more spiritual realm. But the physical realm, the physical world was downgraded. And that was true in Greek thought at that time. What was physical and concrete was downgraded, even in Plato. It's downgraded. It's only the spiritual, ideological, or the phantom things that really are, are, are significant. This song is totally different. This song is totally Jewish, totally Christian. It says, no, the created order, the earth itself has dignity, has worth, because God is proud of what he made. Notice, he is worthy to receive glory and honor because you created you created the earth, and the earth exists by your decision. That's the first song. Think of the implications of that song, if you take it seriously. It's the beginning of science. Science has meaning now because the earth is not chaotic. The earth was created with meaning. There is design. There is uh, God's decision that boundaries all of creation. And also it's an invitation to us to wonder and to marvel at the earth, not to worship it, we worship the Lord who made it, but we're to steward it, to care for it. And this whole doctrine of creation is one of the great uh, pillars upon which our whole Christian faith stands. And that's the first song. Uh, but it's not over. As that song is sung, then things get more complicated. And we know they do. We started worship today with a prayer of confession because we know things get complicated. Uh, God created the earth. It has this good origin. And yet, as the story begins to unfold, it becomes very complicated. It could almost be seen as a scroll written on the back and on the front, on all sides. Many things become uh, are written, some of them good and, and some that we're proud of, some that we're not. And so a story begins to unfold that becomes terribly, terribly complex. And notice, the fifth chapter of Revelation tells us of that. Then I saw at the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne a scroll. And almost every interpreter sees this scroll, especially in the way the book of Revelation continues to unfold, as the story of our lives, the story of our history, both the noun and the verb. Our lives seen as a noun, who we are, and the verb, what we do. It's a scroll. It's a story. And it's written on the inside and on the back. It's sealed with seven seals. In ancient times, if an emperor sent a letter or a document, it would be sealed with his seal, a wax seal, or a clay seal would be put on it. And it could only be opened by his legate or his ambassador. No one else could open it. And the more important documents would have more than one seal, several seals. And in this case, this scroll is about seven seals. It's highly sealed. And yet there it is. And so it was sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice 
Who is worthy? Notice the same word, axios. Who has the integrity? Who has the right to open it? Who is worthy to open the scroll break and break its seals? And now comes a, a, what for John is a very sad part. And no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open it or look into it. You have to understand first century cosmology. When they thought of the heaven, they meant the, the, the creation inconceivable to us. The creation where the angels are, where the divine uh, uh, seraphims are. Notice, no one there is able to open the scroll. That made John very sad. But uh, it does clear the air. It, it rules out seances to try to figure out how to invest in the stock market. Uh, they don't know. Even angels, if you have a, a guardian angel, a guardian angel cannot tell you how to vote, cannot tell you how to, to invest. They don't know. They can't open the scroll. They can't understand the, the scroll. And nothing on the earth was able to understand it. Uh, that may be comforting or not comforting, depending how you look at your heroes and the people that are uh, your earthly leaders. They cannot open it. And the third, nor under the earth. And that would be in the first century sense the, the realm of the demons, the realm of the devil, the realm of all that's evil. It cannot open the scroll either. That is comforting. Uh, Dr. Faust made a huge mistake in making a deal with the devil. The devil cannot answer the questions. He doesn't know. You cannot find answers from the demonic, from the realm of the evil. Evil has power, but not the power to understand. Uh, people on the earthly realm have power, but not the power to understand. The angels, they have a... They have an authority too, I suppose, but not to understand or make sense out of the scroll. And so John begins to weep. Notice the text. Who is worthy to open the scroll to break its seals? And no one in heaven or earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll to look into it. And I began to weep bitterly, John says, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Look. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And that's a messianic reference. The root of David be the one who succeeds David. David's successor. The one who comes out of that lineage. And the Messiah was always thought of as the son of David. As the one who would fulfill all of the prophetic hope. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. And then a great thing happens. So then John says, I, So I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He turns now, expecting to see the great lion. And then he has a surprise. And I saw a lamb, a little lamb, as though he were slain. This lamb that bears fatal marks. Uh, this is a reference to Jesus Christ who bears fatal marks. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. But now this lion has uh, uh, taken our place and bears fatal marks. So I turned and I saw a lamb, this fatal, fatally marked lamb. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of the one who is seated on the throne. This one who, though he has died, is the one who's conquered. Notice that mixture of... of of sentence. He's, he's the one who died, and yet he's conquered. So this vision also of the resurrected Christ. 
And he took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense. And by the way, this is the only thing in this whole picture that's just interpreted to us clearly. The golden bowl of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And that's the one thing. Everything else is left mysterious to us. But the golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sang a new song. Notice it gives us a continuity with the past. Those who've gone ahead of us, who pray for us, they're in this picture too. And then comes a song, the second song. The first one, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and will be, who by his decision created all things and by his decision they exist. And now the second song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed for God saints from every tribe, language, every people, and nation. This wonderful picture of the Lamb who draws in and ransoms people from every corner of the earth. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And they numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. And they sang with full voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. By the way, at the end of worship today, our cathedral choir will sing this great hymn. It was written by George Frederick Handel from this text as the closing song of Messiah. The great work, Messiah, doesn't end with the Hallelujah Chorus. That's the end of part one. It ends with worthy is the lamb who was slain and then the great amen. And Handel got that from this text. This is the great text of the book of Revelation. The whole book of Revelation is built around these two great songs. That God created the earth. It's not, uh, therefore, the earth has meaning and, and worth, and God redeems. He redeems us in the midst of our confusion, in the, in the midst of the dangers, in the midst of all the harm that's happened. He is the redeemer. He's the one who makes us well. And that's the second song. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and the sea and all of them singing, to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Folks, I like to think of these two great songs as the two great foundations that hold up the entire book of Revelation, that hold up our faith, that hold up this church, that hold up your life. They give meaning to your life. You need both. You need to know that God made you well. You need to know that this earth has meaning. Uh, talk about the, the doctrinal basis for ecology, the doctrinal basis for caring for and stewarding the earth. Not to, we don't worship crocodiles, we steward them. We don't worship uh, trees, we steward them. And we, ha we care for them because God made them. By his decision they exist. And this same Lord who stands at the beginning of creation... In, in fact, in John's gospel, in the beginning was the word, the word is with God, who is Jesus Christ. And through him, all things were made. That's the first great, the first great foundation. All things were made. God in Jesus Christ stands at the beginning of creation. Your, your dignity and your worth is settled by Jesus Christ in the way he made you. Ah, and he redeems you. That's the second great foundation. So I, I almost like two great piers that hold up a bridge. 
the two great piers. The bridge is anchored into history on both sides of, uh, uh, take the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco side and Marin County side. It's anchored into history. But the two great pillars, the two great towers, hold the whole bridge. The bridge is focused on its two great towers. God made us. He loves us. He loves us in creating us. He loves us even in the midst of our sadness, in the midst of our crisis, in the midst of tragedy, in the midst of our sin. He redeems us. And those two great posts hold the whole bridge. And it's this mighty uh, lion who is the lamb who holds us up. He's the one in whom all things were made, and he's the one who redeems and makes us whole. I put a, I, I just really uh, wanted to have a quote on the front of the bulletin for my last Sunday was from C.S. Lewis. I owed, <laughs> Last week I had a quote from... Uh, Billy Graham and the week before from John Stott and uh, and I don't know I just felt uh, this wonderful quote from Prince Caspian from C.S. Lewis is so neat Lucy uh, is the first one in Prince Caspian the second novel to see Aslan the great golden lion son of the emperor from beyond the sea and this one who became the lamb in Lion, Witch and Wardrobe and gave his life in behalf of Edmund and gave his life at the stone table and conquered death through dying, identified with us, like the lamb who identifies with us. And then in Prince Caspian, the children are preoccupied with a lot of other things, the other children, and they don't see Aslan. There were a couple of times when he did appear, but they didn't see him. Lucy thought she saw him. And then finally, she does see him first. And uh, she goes to the woods, and there is the great golden lion. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sob Lucy, at last she finds him, because there's a great battle that's facing them in Prince Caspian. The great beast rolled over on his side so that Lucy fell, half sitting and half lying between his front paws. He bent forward and just touched her nose with his tongue. His warm breath came all around her, and she gazed up into his large, wise face. Welcome, child, he said. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger that's because you're older, little one, he answered. Not because you are. I'm not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. These two great pillars that hold your faith, as you grow, they will grow. God made you, and he loves you. He loves you in creating you. He loves you in the midst of 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 your whole life. He is able to understand the scroll of your life, my life. And this holds us up. Heavenly Father, thank you for this great text from Revelation. Thank you that this lamb is the one who is able to make sense out of our lives. And Father, we are grateful for that. And we crown him. We, we thank him that he is worthy and Lord, bless us in this congregation. Bless uh, our new pastor, George Hinman, his family. Bless this congregation. And bless all that lies ahead as these marvelous people uh, grow in grace as they grow in age. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All University Presbyterian Church online audio is available on both CD and cassette. If you would like to support the mission of UPC by ordering copies of sermons or classes, please visit www.
upc.org forward slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.